Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 416. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 416 you're listening to. My guest today is sound artist, field recordist, Jez Riley French, based out of Yorkshire in the UK. Jez's work as a sound artist has been featured at the Tate Modern and Museum of Contemporary Art in Tokyo. And he is someone who I've been following for a little bit now, and I'm absolutely intrigued by what he does. So I'm super excited that he's here with us today. Plus, it's a departure from all the music-oriented audio professionals that we have on. So glad that we're mixing it up a little bit. Looking forward to you hearing this. Jez Riley French coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Allow me to tell you about my Thanksgiving reset. So for my listeners who celebrate Thanksgiving, I hope you had a wonderful time. I certainly did. I did a whole lot of nothing. Yeah, it's funny, you know, leading up to Thanksgiving and generally any holiday, I find that, you know, there's always that last minute rush of work. Everybody's got to have, you know, the thing it is you do done before the holidays. And so there's always that, that craziness leading up to it. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I find that I get a little burnt out, a little fried, and I've got so much going on that it just becomes a big cluster of stress and I kind of lose my enthusiasm after a while for the craft of audio. So this Thanksgiving, what I did, instead of uh, going into the holiday with armed with you know a laptop and an interface and a pair of headphones ready to, ready to continue to churn out stuff even though I'm staying at a relative's house, I decided that I'm not gonna do that. I'm just gonna bring my iPad for entertainment purposes and maybe for emergency purposes. If anything goes weird with the podcast, none of my audio clients needed anything from me. So I kind of set myself up for not having to worry about them over the holiday. And during the holiday, rather than sit around and obsess about audio, I honestly just didn't do a whole lot of anything. Well, I mean, I did stuff, but I mean, it was like goofball stuff. I binged watched The Sopranos again and not the entire thing, but, you know, a chunk of it. Went out and played top golf with my family. And I don't know if you've ever played top golf. I'm not a golf person, but you sit up on a platform and you're hitting balls out into a driving range. And there's like, I guess, little trackers in there that track where the ball goes. It's super fun, honestly. And I could have done it for hours on end. And they bring you food and drink and it's, you know, it's pretty cool. Try it sometime. World Cup, World Cup was on. So we had the TV going with World Cup constantly and that was that was fun but from an audio perspective i did nothing i thought a little bit about it and tried to think about how i could do it better or you know kind of doing a little self-analyzation if you will but for the most part i just dismissed it out of my brain and as the week wore on and we got closer to the end of the holiday I really started to get antsy because my desire to go back in and work on audio grew immensely. 
And by the time we were on the airplane headed home, I could not wait to sit down and get to work. I, I had some mixes that I could start. So it's the first thing I did when I got home, I sat down and just started burning through mixes because I was so excited to be back in the chair. I know, sounds funny, back in the chair sitting on my ass, right? But I was really happy to be back doing it. So not a big lesson here, except for, I don't know how you handle your holidays and your stress level and, and with regards to audio and your clients and any of that business, but consider doing nothing. Consider just enjoying your family, enjoying your time off and let that urgency, that desire for audio rebuild and reset. It's kind of like a hard reset, right? Give it a shot next time, you know, as, as we approach the end of December and the holiday season is approaching, take it as an opportunity to completely do a hard reset. Show up with very little if you're traveling. Uh, try not to go into the studio maybe uh, if you're not traveling and you're close by your studio. It's worse if you have a home studio because you know it's right there. Give yourself a chance to avoid it and see what happens. Try to see if you can go that the holiday season, your holiday break, and just think about other stuff. And then observe in yourself if that urgency starts to build, like, oh man, I gotta get back in the studio and do stuff. It's really fascinating. Anyways, I hope you all have a great holiday season. And uh, we've got a few more episodes here before the end of the year, but uh, I hope it is a stress-free one for you. And don't be afraid to do a hard reset. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. 
As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Jez Riley French here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Jez, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks. And thanks for the invite. Absolutely. I have been loosely following you for a little bit, and the whole world of field recording really lit my brain on fire after I interviewed George Vlad. So you and George are, are my two anchor points and points of reference, really, in the world of field recording and you both seem to come at it from a slightly different approach, different angle. I want to get into your background a little bit. Where did you grow up? In East Yorkshire, where I still live in the UK, mm. um, just outside a city called Hull, Kingston-upon-Hull. So uh, lots of open space once you get out, out of the city. In your upbringing, was there anything that you can point to that started to catch your interest as far as audio is concerned? Is there any one event or a relative that introduced you to tape recorders or anything of that sort? Yeah, I mean, it's my mother, really. I'm, I'm old enough to to have got into music around the time of sort of new wave and punk. So that sort of grabbed my attention. I was about 12, 11 or 12 when it hit. And then for my 13th birthday, 12th or 13th, I can't actually remember now, my mum bought me a guitar and also a little sharp possible tape recorder, mainly for recording me practicing and also to record radio programs. And a few months after I'd been messing around with that, I was listening back to a, a radio show that I'd recorded uh, in the garden one day and I'd accidentally pressed record at the, at, instead of play and didn't realize for you know a few minutes. And then, because I was so young, instead of thinking, oh, I've messed that up, I listened back and I didn't really perceive the difference between sound and music i heard all these sounds that i hadn't really heard with my naked ears because you know you kind of tend to filter lots of stuff out mm -hmm. and it was lis listening back to that five or six minute recording of the garden and it were in the suburbs so all the sort of activity around it that's what really opened my ears if you like to all these sounds that are around us and did you immediately take to that and start to record more and hit yeah. the record button a little more often than just the play button yeah, 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 yeah. That was it from then, then on in. Because <laughs> it sounded a lot better than quite a lot of the stuff on the radio program I'd been recording. So, I, yeah, I became fascinated with with listening, really, and sound. That's that's my focus, is listening. That's what really excites me. And the, the artifact, if you like, the trace, the recording, is, is a bonus if you manage to get something. But it's the listening that matters to me. So, yeah, that's what opened my, my ears up to th things other than composed music, if you like. Mm-hmm. Did you start to have a kind of a divergence in your thought about playing music versus 
recording and recording the environment. Did you develop this as like a second interest or did it start to take over from where you're interested in music? Again, I think because I was so young and I, I didn't study music or music tech or anything like that, it was all part of the same thing for me for a long time. I understood the difference, obviously, between between formed music or improvised music. I was an improviser as a musician and pure sound, if you like, the, the sort of science of sound. But I, I didn't really get into separating it out. I, I didn't feel a need for it for a long time. I still, I still do it in a way. You know, it's, it's very fluid for me. It's not, I don't police it in myself or, or necessarily within others, if you like. For me, it's, like I say, it's about the listening, whether I'm listening to a piece of music or the city in the middle of the day. You know, it's, it's the listening that matters. And how did the recording part of your adventures progress? How did that develop over time in school and as technology changed? Well, that's, that's kind of interesting and also a bit complicated because growing up where I did, the only people I knew were into music were into sort of similar music to myself, like post-punk and new wave. And when I started to meet people who were more into, shall we call it, experimental music or sound, what's now called sound art, you know, that kind of area, I was really disappointed in the, the level of sexism because coming from new wave and being so young i didn't have much money to spend on records so most of the records i bought were from the sale bins and in a city like hull anything female fronted or female led was put immediately in the sale bins because it was in in the 70s it was not you know not very much progressive of cities shall we say Hmm. so so my education musical education was mainly female-led artists and the same when I started to get interested in field recording, which really came from my interest in traditional music via our local library, which had a, a really good selection of music from around the world, you know, field recordings. And again, most of the, most of the figures in, in that side of the industry were female. It wasn't until I started to tour more as an improviser, I started to meet people with slightly different perspectives Although, again, I'd have to say it, took, it was a long time before I met people who knew some of the female uh, recordists and composers that I was interested in. But I suppose, I suppose in terms of my leaps forward, if you like, it was really discovering contact mics and hydrophones that really, which is one of my key focuses. That was a, a big change for me. And that, that was about when I was about 15 or 16, I first found out what a contact mic was. Typically, the people I interview for this show have that epiphany with a little cassette recorder mm. as a kid or a teenager. And that inevitably progresses to being a recording engineer in the studio. But you took it mm. in a very different direction and explored, as you say, with contact mics. When did contact mics even come on your radar and how did they come on your radar? It was actually, I went to a gig, it's a long time ago. So I think I was 14, possibly 15, by the band Crass, anarchist punk band Crass. But I went because Poison Girls were supporting, who were a really good band, and Annie Anxiety, now known as Little Annie. And I'd, I'd not seen Little Annie. I had the one single she'd put out, but I'd not seen her live. And she did a set with radios and a voice. But they were selling like various pamphlets and zines. And one of them was an anarchist kind of newspaper. In the back of that was a, a DIY section on how to build a pickup for a guitar, which was basically a piezo mm. disc. So that's what I did, because I, I was playing zithers at that point. I, I started collecting zithers, and I wanted to amplify them. And the only ones you could buy in the music shops were really expensive 
back then, really expensive sort of instrument mics. So I built one of those, and it was it was when I was out recording my zither into my cassette recorder out in a field near a church locally. I just happened to clip my the, the little piezo pickup onto a fence while I was faffing around sorting out the recorder, and I realised that the noise the fence was making was quite a bit more interesting than the, what I was going to do with the zither. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was my kind of well, what the hell's this, you know? So. And then I just, I spent so much time with, with contact mics, just listening to below the surface of what we perceive with our naked ears, you know, that was a big, a big thing for me, definitely. Same with hydrophones. You know, I just read somewhere, again in a zine, I think, an American composer actually working with hydrophones. And again, I tried, I mean, this was before the internet. So finding out where you bought a hydrophone was like really difficult. Yeah. But the only one, the only ones I could find a reference for were like ridiculously expensive scientific things in universities and stuff. So I started making my own, just sort of experimenting with putting a normal microphone inside a balloon and all this kind of stuff. You mentioned the the fact that the internet did not exist. And that's why mm. I'm, I'm so amazed at your resourcefulness of discovering this stuff. Back then, were there like any electronic shops in the area that you lived that you could explore that? Or did you end up going to the library? No, there was, I mean, I remember there was an electronic shop down an arcade. Actually, going back to what you said about the studio engineer kind of sort of thing, it was the same for me when I walked into electronic shops and musical instrument shops. And I'm sure lots of your listeners will recognize this. That kind of music shop, electronic shop bloke kind of <laughs> really put me off. <laughs> I yeah. didn't want anything to do with these people because you know, they looked down on you immediately. You walked in unless unless you were going to play their favourite riff or unless you knew exactly which circuit you were going to ask for. And that, that just really turned me off. We didn't have the internet, but we we found loads of information. Yeah, the library, swapping letters and cassette mixes and things like that. You know, it was all very, very DIY. And there was, I can't say there was a sense of community. It was like a, a stretched community, as in I wrote to people all over the UK and in Europe and in Japan swapping cassettes, mainly of improvised music, but occasionally there'd be some electroacoustic music or some tape music on there, and that's how you'd find out about things. Most of the music magazines didn't cover this stuff, but I generally have no idea. Thinking back now, I've got no idea how, <laughs> how I heard about all of these influences, you know, because <laughs> I don't know where they came from, but yeah. you just did. Did I read correctly in, in possibly another interview? Did you spend any time doing live sound for bands did you ever delve into that or am i incorrect no no i didn't no i recorded bands ah. i would take my back then i had a reel to reel and then later on mini discs and things like that before digital recorders as we know them now came in so i would record bands i used to do occasionally sort of sound for bands a club locally to me if the sound guy didn't turn up in time that's as near as it got mm. and i had no interest in music tech at all no interest whatsoever I, I kind of deliberately avoided it for the same kind of reasons i alluded to before is that back then sort of 70s 80s and early 90s it was just awash with sexism and blokes acting like idiots so i kind of had no interest in delving into music technology i just lent myself and just experimented really 
once again, just kind of a little comparison contrast between those that choose the studio world and start to learn about mm. all of the compressors and EQs or outboard gear or mixing consoles or tape machines, et cetera. In the world where you were headed, what were you gravitating to as far as what were the tools? You mentioned, of course, contact mics and hydrophones. What about recorders? Where were recorders at for you at that time? What were you using to capture? Well, I, I was interested in recording, as in also for my music at home. So I built, I can't say I built a studio. I had recording set up in my bedroom when I lived with my mum and later in my own flat. And it was tape-based for a long time, you know, reel-to-reels. I used to work with two or three reel-to-reels and also perform with them live. So that's, in terms of the recording, that's where it was at. In terms of possible recording, it went through the, all the sort of portable, early Sony Walkman recording, Walkman cassette recorders and things like that. But again, I, I didn't record that much. I listened a lot through the microphones and to the recorders. But um, I've been going through my cassette archive recently, trying to work out what to transfer. And, and I didn't record that much. I look back on it and I've got like a year's worth of tapes. I've maybe recorded 90 minutes or something, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I was I was listening a lot, but I I didn't press record until, and it wasn't. It also wasn't that I, I only recorded sounds that were strange or new. It was more I had to feel right to press record. You know, it was more of an intuitive thing for me. Hmm. So you'd you'd be listening through the device, but only pressing record in in key moments that that appealed to you. Yeah, and I don't even know if it'd be easy to say yes, but. I don't even know if it was moments that appealed to me. It was just when I felt right. And listening back now, obviously, some of the, I've got no idea why I pressed record at that point. You know, I can't remember for most of them. But I just had to feel right. And that, that continues to this day. You know, I, I can be listening to a soundscape or a single object or whatever or a species that's amazing, but I, I won't press record just because I want to collect it. I think, I think there's maybe a some sort of um, chip on my shoulder there about not being a sound collector. Mm. I'm not a sound collector. It's, it's never, that kind of side of it's not particularly interested me either, you know, because they're just traces. It's like the analogy with photography. A photograph isn't the thing, isn't the person, isn't the place. It's, it's just a trace. And it's the same with a field recording. It's just a, a vague trace of what happened, you know. So we, you know, we were talking about your early teenage years as you, became an adult in your early mm. 20s, where were you headed in terms of your recordings and also just trying to survive as as an adult, like working? Did you try to figure out ways of blending the two, of being yeah, paid, I, paid for what you did and what you loved? Well, uh, <laughs> I didn't get paid for what I liked doing, but I, I progressed through the music industry. So I started off working in record shops and then for a distributor. And then I set up a distribution company in the UK an ethical distribution company with my then partner in, in business and in life. And we ran that for 12 years, handling about 1,500 labels from all over the world, mainly specialist music, so traditional music, jazz, improvised music. That took up all of my time. So I didn't do a lot of field recording during that time or, or listen, didn't have time to do much, <laughs> to do much, do much listening. Yeah. So for, for about 12 years, it was hard slog running the business. I think we set that up in, I think I was 24. So I was about 35 when when we sold the business. We sold the business because it had become incredibly stressful. We would 
an international business, but still running it more or less just the two of us. And also my mum became ill and sadly passed away. Mm-hmm. We broke up, myself and the partner around the business of that. <laughs> so the whole, the whole thing started to, you know, my daughter was born. So we just decided it was time for something else. And it was actually in the sort of couple of years after that, when I re-immersed myself in listening and recording, because I needed something that would just make me stop. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just if you feel recording, you kind of, unless you want to be in the recording, you have to be quiet and sit still. And I just found that really helpful. So that's when I got really heavily into durational listening and durational recording. So several hours spent listening to one thing, you know. Is that one environment, for example, just setting up to record in one particular environment for a number of hours? Uh, Yes, but I was still heavily into the contact mics. So it would often often be listening to one object within that environment, whether it's a rural setting or or an urban setting. I would mic up a a wall or a a bridge or, you know, whatever, and listen to that, Uh, really getting sort of totally sucked into that sound world. That's what really interested me. And were you just listening or were you actually recording? Mainly listening. With the invention of mini discs at first and then digital recorders, it was easier to press record, which I think is a good thing and also a bad thing, you know, because you end up with <laughs> terabytes worth of stuff that you've <laughs> then, got, then got to listen to it. Because doing the recording is one thing, and then you've got to listen back several times to work out whether it has any value beyond your own experience. But yeah, I, I've recorded a lot since then, but I still, I still listen more than I record. But yeah, there's definitely terabytes worth of recordings hanging around. Do you feel that there's a a meditative quality to what you do? It's an interesting word that, if that's what people like to think when they listen to environments or to people's recordings, right, that's fine. I'm not against that. For me, it's more visceral than that. It's quite, it's draining. It's emotionally draining. I think because I'm not, I'm not doing it from a technical point of view. I'm doing it more from a an emotive or intuitive point of view. It's it's a bit like performing. It's it's that level of uh, engagement with with the situation. So um, I wouldn't say it's meditative. It, you say, I mean, with with durational listening and, and recording, after the first two or three hours, then you certainly start to lose lose some sense of yourself, which I guess is a form of meditation. Mm-hmm. But like I say, you come out the other end, you know, <laughs> drained. Let's talk about sorting through what you've captured when you do choose mm. to hit record. You mentioned terabytes of stuff. I think when field recording for me has developed into quite a bit of a hobby and where a studio recording is, is like my main thing. But Mm. the thing that I'm always perplexed by is, okay, great. I got all these great things. Now I have to take time and sort through them in real time. And I'm curious how you approach that. Well, I guess if I'm known as anything, it's as a sound artist. So if I'm commissioned, then obviously there's a, there's a different time scale there. You obviously have a deadline to work to, but if it's just, if you like material I'm gathering for myself or from my own explorations of places, then I'll very often leave them for a while before I listen back to them a few months. And then when I listen back, it's a process. Like if I've got a five hour recording of a, a railing somewhere or a, or a twig, you know, then listening, listening back is quite hard, but I have to do that because I have to realize that if I'm going to ask an audience or a, any kind of audience to, to give me some element of that time, then it has to have something that grabs me still 
and it's a difficult process. I'm often asked, you know, how do you choose which recording works? Or, and again, it's intuitive. I don't think there's a science to it. If there is, I'm, I'm not interested in it. I just listen back and wait for something to click. And then I'll maybe leave it again for a few more months and come back to it. And if it still clicks, if it keeps clicking, then I know there's something there. Do you have a, a system or a method of cataloging your recordings so you can refer back to them or make sure that you know where they are? Yeah, I do. I mean, it's, it's a fairly basic one. You know, it's listening them by year and then location or, or project or a loose. I may, I may decide on a project coming from several different sources, so I'll then move the recordings, usually copying them, into a new folder with that name on it. But I, what, I, what I haven't got, because I used to work in the music industry, I used to be able to, anybody who works in the music industry knows this, you, you sort of have all of the catalogue numbers of all the records stored in your head. You develop a really good memory. As I'm getting older, I'm realising that's not, that's not as good as it was. So I don't have like some kind of searchable list. If I forget what I've called a project, I've had it. I've got to go through all my files and try and find that folder. So I probably need to sort that out. <laughs> but it's generally, I've got a, a, a general system that so far is working for me okay. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as Check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. And do you place any emphasis on making multiple copies so in case your computer goes down or yeah yeah i have about seven or eight copies usually of, of a, every recording yeah i was slightly overkill but um, <laughs> you know, I'm, like most people i guess i've had i've had that situation where you've got two copies and one of your hard drives goes down and then you're in absolute panic you're thinking if the other one goes i've, I've lost everything so so yeah i try and keep several copies when you listen back to things that Let's say you record something five years ago and you don't do anything with it, but then you come back to it and listen to it. Do you get transported back to that time, that place, when you hear back what you've done? 
Yeah, yeah, you, you do, yeah. It's interesting. I've actually just been doing that, going back to a trip I took and listening back to the recordings. This was actually about 12 or 13 years ago. And I'm really enjoying it because there's some recordings there that I think, these are actually quite good. <laughs> Why didn't I do anything with them? And then there's other ones from further back where I honestly can't... I mean, I did have a crashed hard drive, like I mentioned, and I've got a folder full of just random numbered files, which I've got... I'm trying to work through to work out what they are because, as you know, if you recover data, it doesn't come out with the titles. And I'm listening back to some of those and I've got no idea what they are. Again, I think because I'm working with contact mics or hydrophones or electromagnetics, so it's not really obvious what they are. So you can't have that sort of instant memory recall of where you were. So I'm kind of exploring that as well, which can be quite helpful for the creative process because it becomes just material then, you know, as a composer, you can treat it as just material rather than having that heavy link with a specific place. And when it comes to the media, I think I started maybe doing field recording, we'll call it field recording, possibly around 99 or 2000. And I remember Mm. taking a trip with my wife and carrying a little mini disc recorder and a little stereo mic with me on mm. on this trip and what i love about that format in particular is it's got a little bit of the best of analog and digital in terms of the analog of having a physical thing to represent okay well, this is a recording in paris in an alley and mm. you can write on it but then you can also put a table of contents on it too that's where the, the digital aspect comes in for me I'm curious if you, over the years of cassettes and mini discs, et cetera, and transitioning to more digital recorders, do you have a preference of what you record to these days? Or is it, do you just straight up go digital? No, I still use all of those things. I still use a cassette recorder. I still use mini discs. Mini discs were great. I think anybody who's worked with a mini disc knows that the preamps in the mini disc, especially the HIMD, Sony ones that came out towards the end of the mini disc era, the preamps in there are fantastic. Why the entry-level digital recorders couldn't just use those? Because <laughs> it'd be a lot better than some of the ones, that the, you know, especially in the early days of the digital recorders. So I still use them all. I tend to have a small kit that I carry with me, like in a, in a small backpack, which does have a sound devices recorder in it. And I'll often have a cassette recorder in there or a minis recorder in there as well. I mean, I don't really have a preference, although... The advantage of something like the sound devices recorders is that the preamps are incredibly quiet. And because I'm recording these sounds that we can't normally hear with our naked ears, then often these sounds are, relatively speaking, very quiet indeed. So using something like a sound device gives me that ability to listen to those sounds and record them in, in more detail. So that's that's a sort of guide for that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I would agree. It's The convenience of it is really nice. And just to be able to go back, hook it up to the computer, transfer it over. And... Oh, yeah, that's the one thing about... I mean, I, I would still use mini discs a lot more than I do because they're so tiny and portable if it wasn't for the fact that if, you, if you're working on a Mac, it's really hard to get the files off a mini disc. The, the, they had that program when, when we had PCs, which you could download directly from digitally from a mini disc. But nobody's released a hack for, as far as I've found anyway, to do it on a Mac. It's really frustrating. But yeah, digital's great. You just take the card out, whack it in your card reader, and there you are, you know. Are you ever disappointed in, you mentioned you carry a cassette in your kit. Do you ever record something and think, oh, why did I do that on cassette? It's all noisy and I got to deal with that. Or, or are you pleased with that? Did you, you feel like that's 
good a good aesthetic choice for the sounds you're recording. Yes, to the second part of that. Yeah, I mean, the thing with cassettes, I mean, you know this is, you have to accept that it's a cassette. You know, you're never going to get the sound the same as you would with a, a reel-to-reel or a miniscore or a digital recorder. So as, as soon as you have the cassette recorder in your hand, you kind of know that it's going to be hissy. So I, it's never surprised me, that it's, that it's never disappointed me because I knew it was going to be there. And sometimes it works really well. You know, it, like you say, once you've got the trace, then you start to think about the materiality of that trace. And cassette recordings can be very, atmospheric's the wrong word, but very engaging, I think. Yeah, so it doesn't really... I mean, I think the, the one thing that I've, I really struggled with for a long time until digital recorders came out was hydrophone recordings because those sounds are usually very quiet comparatively speaking. So most of my early field recordings of hydrophones, which were mostly made on cassette or later on mini-disc, had a hell of a lot of hiss in it. Because mm. most of my work, I don't do any editing to my work. I don't process the recordings very much. Whereas with hydrophone recordings, then you sometimes do have to EQ out a bit of the hiss, you know. I want to talk a bit about being a sound artist and how that came about for you. Was there a time at which somebody took an interest in what you were doing and said, hey, you know, we'd like to pay a sum of money to come and do something interesting here? Or did it come about in a more, a way that didn't include money or, you know, renewal? Yeah, I was going to say that that thing about somebody saying here's a sum of money. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I came to, if you like, sound art situations. So putting sound into galleries, if you like, for one of a better way of putting it through improvised music and experimental music. And there was a lot of crossover in the sort of 80s and 90s with experimental music and sound art. It was, it was very fluid. But that's one of the things that slightly frustrates me now is that as sound art has become more and more an academic study, that kind of fluidity between experimental music and sound art is starting to fracture a little bit. But yeah, so that's where I came from. I, I would play field recordings or I would mic up entire buildings as part of improvised performances. And eventually galleries started to say, come and do that here. And really these terms, whether it's composer, sound artist, whatever we want to say, they're not really that important. They're just terms that help you access funding sometimes or that gallery might say, we want you to do a sound piece, therefore we'll refer to you as a sound artist. I don't care what, what I'm called, really. It's, I'm the person I am. I, I, I listen, that's what I do. And if it can be put into a setting, then that's great. It's an interesting part of of sound in general, like the idea that you can have a sound installation in in an artistic setting. I mean, that appeals to me in, in so many ways, but it's not something I think a lot of people think of as a potential part of their career. It's getting better. I mean, sound art is now a well-established part of the art world. So, uh, But of course, with that comes all the same biases and borders that, that the art world always has. Like I say, in the last sort of five five to ten years there's been a dramatic change i mean i didn't go to university i left school at 16. i could have gone to university it was it was free then so i really should have done but i didn't i got straight into work but now you know i, I could you know i got commissioned by the tate by moma by all tokyo at museum of contemporary art all these people now you have to have a degree really to become established as a sound artist you know it's gone that they've gone that way which i think it's great people can study it that's great if you want to do that I think it's a shame that it's not as, that the borders are starting to be erected, you know, those walls are starting to come up a little bit. 
Sorry, that sounds very negative. You know? <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. So you're finding now that people want to see a sound artist have a degree? Yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. At sort of gallery level. I mean, the DIY scene and the sort of community, if you like, is, is very open. But at gallery level, it's, it's a tricky thing, but curators can't know everybody. It would be great if they did, but curators don't know everybody. So they go to the standard way that art galleries have always, and curators have always worked, is they look for people who've come from art schools. Hmm. And with sound art, it's really interesting because up, in, up until the sort of, I'd say most of the sort of early pioneers of sound art either weren't in art schools or they maybe had been to art schools, but what they were doing was in direct opposition to the standard academic way of creating art. You know, they were all pushing at those borders and breaking them down, and now it's starting to go back the other way, which I think is a real shame. It's this, the way the art world works. As far as your world and my perception, based on looking at your website and, and watching you online, you seem to diversify quite a bit to put together a living. In fact, for the audience, I, I bought a pair of Jez's contact mics. So you do your own mics that you sell, build and sell. Yeah. You also do workshops, it seems. Yes. Lectures, installations, recordings. Do you find it a difficult path, financially speaking? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky, especially nowadays with the multiple economic crises hitting everybody. I consider myself lucky in that I can afford to live doing what I like doing. There's two interesting things about that. I know quite a, most of the sort of sound artists that are kind of established or emerging in some sense. And even the people who we probably both think, oh, they're really successful, they don't earn a lot of money from their installation work. They might get a big commission, but a lot of that will go on the logistics and the actual construction of the piece. You know, it won't actually end up in their bank, bank balance. <laughs> so quite a lot of us make our money from talks, lectures, things like that. In terms of the workshops and selling the microphones, it's because I, what I really like is community. I like to meet people and I like us to share our knowledge. So with the microphones, for example, I built them for myself for a long time and I'd start building them for friends and friends of friends. And it wasn't until around, I think it was 2000, 2001, I set up a blog to talk about these kind of, if you like, extended techniques, so unconventional techniques, really. And I tested all of the contact mics that you could buy online. There wasn't that many back then, there was, there was a few. And most of them were really either really expensive or really bad. So I knew I, that the designs I was making were better than that and I could sell them cheaper, meaning more people could access them. The technology is the easy part. Yeah, so... It's all about community. Same with the workshops. I just love that kind of time we can spend together listening or talking about what we do. Because it's a solitary thing. This field recording is a generally a fairly solitary thing, you know. So it's great to share share time with people and hear about all the different takes on it and different angles people are taking with it. Yeah, because I guess they're, we'll just use the term field recordist. For each of the people out there doing it, they're going to maybe have a different philosophical concept of what it is they're doing and, and how that plays into the world. And I'm sure you could take three people and have three radically different outlooks on the, on the whole thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
when I first did workshops, I was kind of invited to be part of other workshops. And this was only 15, 16 years ago, maybe. Workshops on field recording specifically. I think anybody who might listen to this who was involved in those or <laughs> went to them will be okay with me saying it was mainly men, mainly interested in bird, in recording birds. It was that kind of nature aesthetic, mm. uh, especially outside. I mean, sound art ones or ones based on experimental music had a bit more you know, urban in recording. But in terms of field recording, if you like, people thought field recording meant nature recording and that meant bird recording. And it wasn't until... I started to have more of a curatorial role in that and I started to alter the way that we talked about the workshops and the content of the workshops that we started to address the balance you know, in terms of identity and gender. And then the conversations opened up massively. So on the memoration workshops I lead now, we'll have sound designers, we'll have field records, we'll have nature buffs, we'll have musicians, composers, sound artists. We'll all mix and we'll all talk about what we do. And the conversations get huge. When it's just one strand, it, in the early days, it tended to boil down to discussing specs of microphones, which had, <laughs> I was not interested in whatsoever. The technology is really the easiest part. It's the, it's, the, it's the least interesting part of what we do. You know, It's interesting, but it's the least interesting of all the interesting parts, I think. Yeah. I mean, just in the kinds of people you named, I mean, people think of field recording, as you said, and then some people, it leads them to nature, but... There's so many different paths one could take with it. And it's not mm. it's not a singular path that is associated with field recording because it, it can mean a, a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But I think yeah. what what's fascinating to me, and I'd be curious to get your take on this, is how easy it is to get into it without mm. a lot of money. Yeah, it's become much more democratic. That's the thing. I mean, to get a decent a decent recorder, you know, with quiet preamps back when I started, you were talking Nagra yeah. reel to reels, which was still in the end, you know, in professionals' hands, really. So now, yeah, you, with a couple of hundred quid, you can get a recorder that's pretty good, you know, fairly good and cheaper than that, even if you go second hand. Yeah, so it's becoming much more democratic, which is great. And I think, again, not to sound negative, but I think that's where, where there's the dividing line is because some people will maybe buy a recorder and think learning how to use that technically is what makes you an artist. And it, it, it isn't. It's like drawing. You know, everybody with enough time can learn to draw a reasonable picture of something. But it's what you do with it that is where the artistry comes in. It comes with time and, and your own personal inflection. If you just want to be a technical field recorder, maybe location crew or something like that, that's possible. But I, I'd say even there... I think producers and productions are getting more clued into the fact that it's not just about technical skill, precision. You can radically change a, a production if you have a, a sound recordist who has, has a bit more imagination than just purely based on the technical, you know. It's interesting that you mention that because location recordist or studio recorder, like you can get into the technical simple capture aspect of it but it's really where the as you say the imagination kicks in and the the blending of being a recordist meets with the artist mm. then that could even take you down to a path of sound design for films mm. and such i i don't know where i was going with that it's other than just to say it's it's interesting to really dissect this in my head yeah i think one of the maybe mistakes the wrong word but 
one of the mistakes that people often make is this idea that if, if you're interested in sound capture in a studio setting and you then buy a field recorder and go out with your microphones and, and the recorder, you can't transfer the skills you've learned in the studio to the outdoors. It's a completely different world, mm-hmm. literally, literally. And very often some of the things that you have to do to get a decent recording outside of a studio are the opposite of what you'll do in a studio. And one of the mistakes I think we often make is to assume that there are rules for a field recording. And the thing about field recording, as far as I'm concerned, is there are no rules. Because A, they've not been written. B, they should never be written. And C, if they are written, tear them up immediately. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because out in the uncontrolled world, things are changing every second. Nothing ever repeats. You know, we can't control it. We shouldn't aim to control it. If you're interested in controlling it, then maybe that that limits what you're going to be able to do. You know, I experience this, and I think it it's I got to get past it. But I always feel when I take a kid out and start to meander around with things in public, I always feel a sense of awkwardness. People are like, "Whoa, what are you doing there? What what have you got there?" And just feeling like I'm intruding on mm-hmm. the environment there, and I've. I keep thinking of ways to become more covert with it. Do you ever experience that where people are intrusive in, in what you're doing when you're recording? Yeah. I mean, if I'm, if I'm around people, whether it's in an urban setting or whatever, then I'll, I'll tend to only record with very tiny microphone, you know, this small DPA lapel mics or something like that. So that I, people won't necessarily know what I'm doing. So there are ways of doing it. I mean, I'm always conscious that I'm there. I am interjecting myself into that environment, wherever it is. I don't spend a lot of time recording in in the UK when there's people around. And I think that's because, I mean, this is a bit of a a meandering path here, but in terms of music, I got very interested in music where I couldn't understand the words when I was very young. So whether that was music in a foreign language or a band like the Cocteau Twins with Liz Fraser who would make up her own language. I was really fascinated with that, like non-narrative language. Mm-hmm. So I think when I'm recording in urban situations, I find that much more rewarding situation if I'm in a country where I don't understand the language. I can tune into that, if you like, the musicality of the voices much much more easily than I can in the UK because I'm immediately drawn to the narrative of, of the words in the UK than understand the language. Whereas if it's in a language that I, I don't understand, then I can just, I listen to it as a sound sound more if you see what i mean that's interesting i didn't realize that she was making up her own language the the singer from the cocteau twin it's it's not all the time it's, the early re- records did have lyrics but the, then there would be times when the the words would be stretched to breaking point so it, it, it wouldn't be you could follow the narrative yeah and, and and she has a very thick accent when she's singing as well so sometimes it took me years to work out, oh no that's definitely a word but it, it didn't it's not apparent at first yeah i just loved it i just loved listening to the sound of her voice I'm I'm with you there. I've I can't say I know the name the lyrics to many of those songs, but just the the combined sonic presentation from the whole band really is is captivating to me. Some of the younger listeners are not going to know who the Cocteau Twins are, but but great great band. Yeah, go go out and find and find their stuff. Yeah, and and Liz's solo stuff as well. She's now starting to release solo stuff with Sun Signature. I mean, some of the some of the young listeners will probably know her voice from the Massive Attack mezzanine album. You know, she sings a couple of songs oh, on that. But, yeah. yeah. 
Now, you and your daughter do a decent amount of things together, I assume, now that she's doing a very similar thing to you. Is that right? Yeah, she's, she's an artist. She, she went to university and she, she works a lot with installation and film and sound. So we've you know, been very lucky to occasionally work with, with Phoebe, which is incredibly rewarding. I stopped performing as an improviser around 2013. There was some really heavy bullying on the scene back then, again, linked to misogyny and all kinds of things. And I just had enough. And now I've started to do it again, but I could only do it if I'm performing with Phoebe. Because <laughs> it's, I, I it's not that I'm not confident, it's just I need, I need that kind of, that inspiration of, of seeing how Phoebe works to kind of make me feel comfortable doing it again. Her name is Phoebe Riley Law, is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Okay, I'll make sure and make some links in the show notes for the audience so they can check Phoebe out. Thanks. Who do you look to, whether in the past or currently, a mentor or somebody that, that greatly influences you that you're intrigued by who's in the world of field recording and sound arts? That's always a tricky question. I mean, there's so many artists that I, I admire as people. It's hard to pick one or a few. I mean, I'm very interested in some of the names that may be maybe lost from the the, his, the written history. So Atsuko Tanaka, the Japanese artist hmm. who worked with sound as well as other other forms. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's hundreds. I'm constantly aware of, you know, Anaya Lockwood, Pauline Oliveros, so many people. But I, I think this, this question of influence is a tricky one for me because I don't know if you agree with this, but whenever you read an interview with a musician or a recordist or whatever, and they're asked for influences, they'll name other musicians or other recordists or whatever. And actually what actually influences is, is much wider than that. It might be a book we've been reading, you know, a novel, or it might be the fact that we feel particularly healthy today or we've had a good meal. Those things influence me much more. So Phoebe is my biggest influence. She's, she's the reason I carry on doing what I do rather than just you know, shrivel up and, and hide away. <laughs> yeah, do you, do you think if it weren't for her, like you'd kind of withdraw more? Do you think that she gets you to come out and participate? To some extent, yeah. I think I always wanted to have some community and that was always through workshops and meeting up with people. It was, it was why I carried on improvising for as long as I did really, because it's that meeting other people and sharing, sharing space with people. Uh, so I missed that. It's something I'd like to get back into more on my own, because obviously Phoebe's off doing doing her own things now. But yeah, I th I, maybe, yeah, yeah. She certainly constantly inspires me. If she rings me up for, to have a chat about something she's doing, a piece she's doing or what she's working on, I find my brain can fire really, really easily on listening to her talk. Uh, whereas if I'm thinking about my own work, it's much more, <laughs> much more of a struggle. And maybe that's because I've been doing it for so long. I don't know. Yeah. Is there anything on the horizon that you have in the works that you can talk about? Or are you laying low right now? Well, I, I was in hospital in 2020 with what they thought was COVID. It turned out to be normal, normal pneumonia. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just normal pneumonia, huh? Yeah, yeah. They said it to me like it was like, oh, you've only got normal pneumonia. So, oh, great, thanks. But it was a relief. But it did have that same effect of having like a fog on my mind. So my memory is really fluid right now. You know, I, I find it much harder to remember things. I have to really struggle sometimes to, to recall things. So I've been trying to finish a book for a few years now on the sound of 
the spaces between architecture and Japan, I've really got to get that finished. Mm. So it's the, it's the writing part of it that I've got to get finished. I'm also writing a, I wouldn't say it's a book, it's a collection of, of musings, if you like, on micro-narratives in Japanese cinema. So there's a lot of writing. <laughs> in terms of sound work, I've got this long-running project on recordings from Iceland, which, again, I need to finish. They're, they're, those pieces are finished. I just need to sort out releasing them. And I'm also starting to work on a second series of Salts pieces, which are these pieces where I'm getting orchestras to play and I'm making up the entire building. So I'm not making up the musicians or the space that they're in. I'm making up the entire building and getting the building to vibrate with the musicians. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's the next sort of big, big project. How many inputs are we talking about when you're doing that? Well, the first, I released a CD called Salts Adagios. Those recordings, on average, I had about 20 to 30 contact mics, several geophones, and, and some normal omnis in, in the roof space and things like that as well. So quite a lot. <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. Well, I'm going to include a link in the show notes, obviously, to your website, which is jezreillyfrench.co.uk. And uh, for the audience, I think the many of you who know Jez's work will have already listened to this, and you'll naturally check these links out. But if you're not familiar with Jez, I highly recommend you check out his website and uh, explore what he's been up to because it intrigues the hell out of me. So Thanks. true pleasure to speak with you. I'm, I'm really glad that we can connect and I will definitely continue to follow your work. Yeah, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you. You take care. Thank you. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Jazz Riley French here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. If you like the show and you want to help the show, the absolute best thing that you can do right now is to head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Five stars, maybe a written thing as well. Whatever you can do would be appreciated. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That, of course, includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical voice of Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>